The world as we know it continues to evolve and change into something that we can only hope to understand. This is why the registry continues to provide industry insights through personal interviews with the leaders who are shaping real estate on a daily basis. By subscribing to our podcast, you are helping us in our work, and we will continue to deliver programming such as the one you're about to hear. Please click the subscribe button and let your friends and colleagues know about us. It will help you and the industry stay ahead of the game. Today we sit down with Mark Quattrocchi, partner at Quattrocchi Quack Architects. A son of an artist and cabinet maker, Mark grew up surrounded by drawings and sawdust, influencing his decision to take drafting as his seventh grade elective. From this early age, he knew he was going to be an architect. Paying for his architecture education by his carpentry work, he graduated equipped with a Master of Architecture degree and a keen understanding of construction, perfect for opening his own firm, Quattrocchi Architects, in 1986. Soon after, Quattrocchi got the opportunity to design a new classroom building at Mendocino Community High School in Mendocino, California. He was so moved by the passion of the teachers and school administrators that he completely immersed himself in the process of educational design. To this day, this ranks as one of his favorite projects because it inspired him to veer the firm to be educationally focused. Later, Steve Kwok joined as partner in 1993, and together they built Quattrocchi Kwok Architects, a thriving K-12 and higher education firm with two office locations and a staff of more than 60 people. Welcome to the pod, Mark. Mark, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, Vlad. Uh, very well, thank you. Nice to talk with you. Yeah, same here, same here. Where do we find you today? Where Where are you? Well, I'm I'm in Sonoma County, the the town of Santa Rosa, which is an hour north of San Francisco. Yep, I've been in Sonoma County for about thirty five years now. Yeah, Berkeley before that. And have you been Im- impacted by all these fires recently? How is how is that affecting yes. you guys physically? Immensely. Um, you know, sadly, Santa Rosa is a city, but all of Sonoma County uh, since two thousand seventeen seems to be far too much. Even all my East Coast relatives seem to, on an annual basis, call. We're fine. I've been evacuated twice, and the fire got very close to our house. I actually ended up in 2017 in the Tubbs fire, fighting a little fire across the street with my oh neighbors. Boy. Wow. But okay. we, so far, so good. Um, just as you well know, the, the aftermath of smoke and then the, what's happened to so many people's homes uh, is pretty devastating in our area. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's been, it, it has been devastating. And as someone yeah. who used to live in the Bay area, um, you know, luckily enough when I was there, there was very little of this, if, if any of it. So it's yeah. uh, really heart wrenching to see kind of how it's changed so quickly. Uh, we only left about five years ago. And I think of those five years, four have been pretty dramatic. Yeah. I'm 63 years old, spent my whole life in Northern California and you're absolutely right. The last five years and if anybody needs a clear illustration of the effects of climate change, we yeah, are here. We, we are exhibit yeah. number one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Mark, please, uh, by way of introduction, can you give us, you know, a little bit about, you know, your firm, your practice, who you are, what you do, your sphere of influence? Be glad to. Uh, so, uh, my, I'm an architect, and I I specialize in educational facilities, uh, mostly K twelve, but also uh, higher ed. But I started the firm 34 years ago. Um, my wife and I moved up from, from Berkeley, and I had a real interest in starting my own firm. And in the early, early days of my firm, I was a firm of one, 
got an opportunity to work on a small educational project up north in Mendocino. And I will tell you that it utterly changed the trajectory of my passion and of my career. Okay. Working with a small group of teachers, designing a classroom space, a little 5,000 square foot building, was the most remarkable experience for me. Uh, you never meet a more dedicated group of people. There's no money and no time, but these are the most passionate, highly energetic people I ever work with. And it just changed the way I looked at my, my field of architecture. And we're now a firm of 65 okay. and specialize, as I say, just in schools. And uh, Mark, do you guys just to work in Northern California or throughout the West Coast? Yes, just in, just in Northern California. We've done some uh, trials in Southern California, but we're a very hands-on organization. So it's, uh, it's important for us to be close enough. So we're usually within two to three hours of our, of our school districts. Fortunately, as you know, as a barrier resident yourself, uh, there is no shortage of the need for new and improved schools in our area. So from Monterey is a further south. We've been almost to the Oregon border, but it's mostly the San Francisco Bay Area up through Sonoma and Mendocino yeah, County. Yeah, got it. And um, your kind of love for the for the industry does does that also come from some other personal experiences? You know, was anybody in your family a teacher? And yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. I, you, you, my wife is a teacher. When okay. I met her, when I was in graduate school, it's it's interesting you should say that. Uh, when I was dating her, our dates was me working my master's thesis and her grading <laughs> papers. It was a very romantic yeah. relationship. But you can't not live with a teacher and not only understand how hard these people work, and that's a, a whole different conversation. But you get a feel for what what's in the heart of a teacher. Uh, getting to know her and and her fellow teachers, I can't help but say influenced me when I had the opportunity to do the school project. It was easy for me to jump on it, and I just found it's an industry full of people like my wife. You know, wonderful, dedicated, passionate people. Yeah, that's that's interesting you say that, and I'll uh, share a personal uh, story of 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 mine Please? too, Marks. But uh, Mark, but I've uh, my, my wife was. A teacher when when we met oh. also and when I was in business school kind of going through business school that's uh, that's what she did um, for a little bit of time while we kind of you know settled and you know found found our new life essentially so um, I guess we have that yeah. in common so <laughs> it also made for cheap cheaper dates yeah you can go out and really you, <laughs> she right. had homework to do and I had my thesis to work on so it was that's easy right. to date <laughs> that's right that's right yeah yeah tell yeah. us a little bit about you know this industry so schools have kind of obviously been impacted uh, in you know many ways with you know COVID but you know before we kind of get to that maybe yeah. we can talk a little bit about also you know where was that industry heading you know pre-COVID you know was were, you know what were some trends in that in that space yeah. that, that kind of you know made it interesting thank you for reminding me there was a time before COVID you're right <laughs> and we and we can't we really all of us can't lose sight of that because it will we will have a time out of that yeah, education, I've been doing this long enough that I can say, as a non-educator, seeing changes and trends in education. Um, you know, most recently, it's around, you know, sort of looking differently at teaching and learning. I, I'm old enough where teaching really was a teacher standing in front of a group of students, usually of 30 to 35, dispensing lectures to students who would then carefully take notes and answer questions. And so it was usually facing the front with, the, with teachers. Um, we have a much different sort of student-centered view of education, where it changes what I think about a classroom when I design a classroom. So the sort of factory model of self-contained classrooms all looking the same is absolutely flipped on its ear. And what we've been working on, and still are, 
are how can we create spaces that supports teachers in a different way? So how could the space be more flexible to allow teachers to break up into big groups and small groups, you know, movable furniture? How about spaces that they could break out into in smaller groups to work on a project while another group is working, a larger group, but can still be supervised? How about outside learning? So beginning to break down the walls of what is a classroom. And when you live in Northern California, we're blessed with this great climate. And I think outdoor education plays a role in a COVID world too, but just as a good education environment that responds to pedagogy, I find beginning to think of, of learning environments as more than a standard 960 square foot box, but uh, kind of remade in a way that allows uh, a variety of learning styles by our students, instead of all of them facing the same way, beginning to look at different ways of, of breaking up our groups of, of students and teachers. Yeah. And some great examples of that. Yeah. And did the physical space, was that physical space evolving because the process of teaching was also evolving, right? So yes. were they kind of, yes. you know, done in parallel? Was was one driving the other? Well, in, in yes, great question. In my world, absolutely one was driving the other. Good architecture, whether you're doing schools or hospitals or somebody's home, is driven by the users. So for me as an architect, uh, it was imperative to understand how teachers work. So if you just pay attention when you listen, if you ask questions and ask the right questions, you begin to recognize, oh, I guess the classroom doesn't look like what I knew when I was in high school or elementary school. So uh, the, the, what a classroom looks like that supports you know, 21st century learning environments uh, is very much driven by pedagogy, educational program, the ways teachers work, uh, and I think the way students learn. And so the, uh, if, if a, a, an architect designing a school asks the right questions, we'll find out that a classroom does not look like what many of us might think it looks like because yeah. of our own childhood. And that's very exciting to me. Yeah. Uh, that, that's where architecture, that's where we earn our living. Yeah. Were there parts of the country or maybe other parts of the world where some of this innovation was being driven from and kind of came to the U.S.? Or do you think maybe, you know, in, in the U.S. We were, we were driving some of those changes? Both. Great question. Uh, so I, again, lived long enough to see for, I'll use as an example, there's a, they're called small learning communities at, at a high school level. So traditionally high schools were very departmentalized, a math department, English department, science department. Some of our schools are beginning to look at integrating those different disciplines within a smaller group of a, a building. So these teachers are working cross-curricular with a smaller group of students. I found some models of that in the 90s when I first got to work on some high schools uh, in Japan, of all places. Uh, they, were, they were looking at, at different models of arranging. But in candor, it was really California that seemed to be leading that that's that change. Uh, so we found some models of that. And I think we now as architects, our firm are now serving as a models that the world is looking at. Uh, so we've had inquiries from other parts of the country and other parts of the world about some of our projects. So I would say a lot of these changes are coming from right here in California. Yeah. And, and, sorry, and I'm sorry, one last thing about that. I think high tech drove a lot of that for us. When I first started doing this, there's a particularly innovative school that the Gates Foundation picked up called the Napa New Tech High School, and they're doing a replication grant across the country. We were integrating technology long before, you know, in the infancy of the internet and when computers and classrooms were uh, obscure, this was a school that integrated it into the whole program. I had no models worldwide to look at. And I went to, with, with the school district, to Apple Computer and Sun Microsystems back in those days. I think high tech is one of the things that's driving 
how we look differently at educational environments. Yeah, that's that's very fascinating. So, yes. you know, knowing that and now kind of knowing where the world is post-COVID, right? Uh, you know, everybody's been talking about COVID as kind of this great accelerator of, you know, trends, right? And so I imagine in education, obviously, that will happen, but also in, you know, with hygiene and social distancing and all these other variables now that we have to throw into the mix. Now now what? What, what do you think the school of the future <laughs> might look like? Well... You know, I have two. That's a again. Uh, I think a, the, the fundamental question we should be asking, and we are dealing with that regularly with a lot of our school district clients. I will say that my answer is not unlike what my answer was pre-COVID, in that some of the strategies that we're looking at to deal with COVID nineteen were the very things that we thought about that make good learning uh, spaces. Yeah. But it's hyper hypercritical now. Before and I and I'll answer the question. Before it was studies that proved that learning and uh, was was uh, uh, testing results were better and learning was increased and comprehension was better when these things were done now we're talking about the the health and, and safety of our of our students so the post covid world of education or sorry covid world of education the obvious one we all know about is ventilation there's so much published uh, about not only the larger respiratory droplets that disappear in a fairly short period of time, but these microscopic respiratory particles or aerosols uh, that are long lasting for minutes and in some studies by, by hour, right. hours. And that greatly affects anybody doing anything inside. So the, the way we respond to that are many of the things that we thought about before. Natural ventilation. Uh, if I look at a, an existing school that we're remodeling or a new one, can I do something as simple as open the windows? The, the importance of natural ventilation is huge. Uh, just as we know, being outside is valuable. Moving air from the outside is very important. And of course, the most fundamental that we talk the most about in schools is the mechanical systems. It'd be one thing if I'm building a new school and we have uh, the ability to uh, add outside air or economizers, uh, and we can set those to the point that there is large amounts of makeup or outside air circulating through the classroom mechanically, uh, and then using filters, usually a MERV, uh, MERV 13 or better filter uh, that cleans the air that makes our way through. But it's much more difficult, and it's our biggest challenge on existing schools that are older heating systems. So we have school districts now where we're doing mechanical systems upgrades. Uh, the Division of State Architect in California has to approve all schools. is creating a process to make that quicker. Yeah. But the most fundamental thing is how can we improve the mechanical systems, improve better uh, ventilation in our schools? I, I liken that to what we always thought about was CO2 in a classroom. So there's a, a loss in cognitive ability when you end up anywhere over seven to 900 parts per million of CO2. That's the same, the same sort of air movement that's necessary for that to happen as it is to ensure that we think about the aerosols. So the lens I use is the same one I used previously in schools is how do we increase uh, artificial uh, or, or force ventilation system in our school? I have more to this. There, beyond, I mean, we could talk a lot about ventilation. Yeah, and yeah right. And if, if it's a ventilation, operable windows. I think it's unrealistic to think, well, we just need to make all the classrooms twice as big. And that's just the reality of what we have in existing yeah. schools and the funding for new. I do have a lot of schools where we break down those walls between classrooms already. There's some great examples of schools where there's larger folding walls that allow classrooms to increase in size, and those will be valuable in a COVID world. But I started to talk before about the importance of outdoor 
you know, breaking the, the walls to the outdoors. So these could be simple outdoor learning areas where a group of students can gather outside, as I would have done in a pre-COVID world. Yeah. But what a wonderful way. And in fact, I wrote a paper recently on the tuberculosis outbreak in the United States, which actually started from the, the German schools um, uh, where, where, where they were outdoor schools, but they were really used as a response to tuberculosis. And so there's some really interesting literature about as a response to tuberculosis in the United States, starting in New York and working its way west, how they move classrooms to the out of doors. And I know talking to teachers, there's all sorts of issues around that. But again, in California, why not have a hybrid model that sometimes kids work from home and other times they work from school? Once they're at school, why not have part of that be outside? A lot of our schools have, been, have created small outdoor areas and larger outdoor learning areas, sure. which yeah. we all know are safer spaces for kids with, with dealing with COVID to be. Yeah. So I think that's a big response to COVID that doesn't get talked about as much. And there's a lot of details around what we can do to make those better spaces outside too. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And Mark, is uh, the majority of your work for, for public schools or private schools or, or a balance between the two? Mostly all public schools. We do some private schools. And it's a good question because private schools – uh, either they have, they have better or worse resources than right, some of the public right. schools to deal with that. But most of ours is K-12 public schools. Yeah. So, Mark, you, you and I have talked about this a little bit, and um, y- y- we we both know that for many families, you know, school is a safe place, whether it's, you know, safe for security, safe for nutrition, safe for, you know, learning you know, for all kinds of different reasons. I know, you know, my kids, uh, you know, are going to a public school. You know, we have homeless kids in our school also. Um, there are kids that, you know, rely on meals essentially to eat, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a very important kind of aspect of our society, not to mention, obviously, you know, the teaching and the learning and that kind of thing as well. Given that you've been so, you know, close to the to the administrators and the schools and and things like that, how how are how are they doing? What what's been your perception? Well, it's probably the same as yours. Uh, this is just this is astronomically difficult, and frankly, it falls on the shoulders in the end of teachers once again. Uh, and maybe being married to a teacher is easier for me to to, to empathize with them. Uh, in uh, they on turning on a dime for us in March. Um, suddenly had to create um, a learning platform successfully to students that never existed before. Yeah. So uh, it, it, this, this has been, you can see it in the faces of the teachers and, and certainly administrators and board members I work with and the parents that I get a chance to meet in designing schools since, since Shelter in Place started in, in California. But it falls so heavily on teachers. We expect so much of them in a pre-COVID world, and I mean personal resources, personal time, they really feel this, uh, I think, deep in their in their soul for what they see their students going for. And there's so many students that are marginalized already, and they have issues at home. Uh, that that's, that safety net that school was that you just referred to, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more on that, is broken down because now they can't even be at school for that safe environment. And some of them, the, the students just aren't attending uh, school at all right. because they're they're in, they're in, they're for a variety of reasons of what's going on at home. So I feel so badly for how this falls on on our teachers. Um, they are, I think, uh, fall of twenty is so much better, though still incredibly painful than what I saw happen in in uh, spring when this happened. And, and literally on a day's notice, we're asked to create a platform that never existed before. 
to teach in a way they've never taught before. In fact, they were asked to do something that has been theorized for quite a while. We've, we've talked about that when I designed schools, about the notion of the school of the future may be no future, no school at all. They were asked to do that instantly. Yeah, right. Uh, it's remarkable. They've done it as well as they have. What do you think are some of the needs? What, what are some of the things that you've observed that some of these schools needed, needed the most? Yeah. Well, that's a, fr- frankly, a very interesting part of this conversation for me. So uh, this is very tactical for me. Uh, when this happened in March, so March 15th or thereabouts, uh, Northern California went under a shelter in place, county by county within a couple of days. And w- all of us heard on the news, I saw some pretty terrifying articles the first week or two about what some of our students were facing. And I say the students, and of course, it's the families, but what these students were faced with. Suddenly, they were at home. They didn't have the resources that they had at school. And they were asked to suddenly um, suddenly participate in distance learning. Yeah. But these are students that didn't have computers. Okay, so the school might have cobbled together a couple of computers, but they were working from home without an internet connection. Or they they, they might have had some access to an internet, but it was spotty, or they were given a hotspot, but there's there's no cell coverage, or it was one kind of provider and they needed another. What I saw uh, was how quickly the inequality that we know exists in education for marginalized, uh, economically disadvantaged students, how quickly and brightly we shined a light on the inequity in education. So many students suddenly didn't have access to the simplest things. Yeah. They didn't have enough copy yeah. paper to get them papers. They had no way to talk to their, their teacher, had none of the technology to do that. And, I, and I'm sorry, in public schools, certainly in California, the resources for suddenly being able to buy hotspots and computers and copier paper simply wasn't there. So I had a chance to do something about that. So I don't know if we want to talk about that. Yeah, please. Um, yeah, of course. So it's at a very personal level. I recognize that millions and millions of students are affected by this. There's nothing I could do about that. But I was really overwhelmed by this. I mean, there's, you, you can't work this closely in education and not be personally moved by this. So uh, it's pretty old school. I just got on the phone. I started calling school districts because I know a lot about the Bay Area school districts, the school districts that were the most economically disadvantaged and rural. I, it's interesting. The challenges that may have happened in some of the poor inner city schools happened just as much with some of the most rural schools like the Two Rock School in Sonoma County, they literally had no way to reach to reach out to their kids. Yeah. Um, they they for example, uh, I mentioned the lack of computers, uh, but the big one was hotspots. Hotspots were as hard to come by as toilet paper was back then. And we, when I started making these phone calls, and these weren't just school districts I'd work with, but just school districts I knew about, and a couple of them were our own school districts. Either talking to superintendents or principals at that level. You could hear the, the pleading in their voice of, can you help us somehow deal with hotspots? We got a line on hotspots, but they won't be available till August. And this is March. So we were a little more, actually a lot more successful in finding, uh, we ended up purchasing 60 to 70 hotspots. Uh, in, ma- in about a week, we distributed those hotspots to seven or eight schools. Uh, we picked the schools, as I mentioned, there was a particular one in uh, that that is the most economically disadvantaged, a large uh, Latinx community. So we w- delivered uh, hotspots to them. The interesting thing about hotspots is you can't just provide the hotspot; it has to come with a subscription. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to connect get, to something. Right. Exactly. And I don't want to get too technical, but a lot of these hotspots that school districts had were AT and T only. But the problem was it was a Verizon community, or as Two Rock, they had 
three different internet or sorry uh, cell coverage providers. So we were able to find hotspots that actually work with a variety of different. They would actually lock into a variety of different providers: T-Mobile, AT&T, yeah, yeah. And, and Verizon. And that it, it was like we were delivering somebody's meal who hasn't eaten in a week. Yeah, uh, it was remarkable yeah. to see. And it was something as basic as a hotspot. So I started digging around a little bit more, and I found out of all the things, it kind of broke my heart to hear that copier paper. They were copying. One school district said it was 60,000 impressions, 60,000 pieces of paper in a day uh, that they were trying to, to get out to the students. So we bought uh, hundreds of reams of paper, found, again, it was pretty hard to find simply as simple as copier paper, but we were able to get reams of, of copier paper and then delivering all this stuff is a whole other story, but getting these distributed. And then, one, and again, I'm sort of moving off of technology. You mentioned before about, uh, about, uh, about students using their schools to eat. We discovered particularly with this uh, one school district that a lot of the students were um, parents, were undocumented citizens. Yeah. And all the, you know, the things that the government did early on does not benefit an undocumented citizen in the United right. States. Right. And they couldn't even get food. Yeah. So we found a family relief fund uh, and funded Thirty-five or five thousand dollars—I forgot. I'm sorry, I've forgotten which—to the family relief fund, and and all it did was provide these gift cards that local grocery stores offered at a discount to provide food. Because what's what's the most fundamental thing we can do for students? You know, allow them to have a meal. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. all the hotspots in the world don't do any good if the student's hungry. Yeah. So that all happened in March, April, May. Um, it's just so odd to me that in the country that we live in, with the resources we have and the wealth that we had. We had families that just simply didn't have a meal, a copier paper, or a way to connect to the internet. So it was wonderful to get to do some of that. Yeah, Mark, no, that's a that's a fantastic story and really commendable in terms of the effort oh, and and all all of that. And obviously, you know, this is you are you are connected to that industry more more than most people are, right? And sort of on a on a very different level, right? So you get to see some of these impacts and kind of the, you know, results of, of your work right away, thank which you, is, yeah. which is, which is fantastic. So yeah, thank you for doing I, that. I appreciate that. I have to say, you know, let, I don't want to go on too long, but it, it was, thank you. For, I really do appreciate that. It was more of like an imperative to me. I, I didn't do it because look at the good things we're doing. Yeah, and, and I should say right. my, my partner and I, right. my, I, you know, we, we did this. Uh, I just was the face of it. Because it was just an imperative. We yeah. can't be this close to education and not realize we all have to do something. And it was something that, Vlad, is I, we did this. It was nice. Somebody wrote a newspaper article. And suddenly I started getting phone calls of people asking how they could help. That's great. So I could direct them to school districts that could buy more hotspots or to the Family Relief Fund to buy groceries. It was, it's just wonderful, the kindness uh, and generosity. We focused a lot of the, the things that are going on. And there are some awful things happening. There are some wonderful, gener generous people who truly care about their community. You know what they say, you know, act local. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was lovely to see. This this is a good segue into kind of my next question which was going sure. to be, you know, what are what are some of the things that that you find hopeful in 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 all of yeah. this and 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 not just hopeful in terms of you know the things that you're doing and uh, and the feedback that you that you're getting from you know people, but but what what does this mean for for your business and your industry and kind of how all of this is going to, you know, raise result in something new in the next decade? You know, that, thank you for asking that question because it's easy for all of us to get caught in COVID and politics and civil unrest. Um, but there is, there is a lot good and I do see good on the horizon. I mean, 
I think as an architect, you tend to be a hopeless optimist. You, know, you sort of have to be. What I see, what I'm optimistic about uh, is the, the, I think, a very bright light that, got sh- that is being shined on education and the importance of what teachers do. I, how, many, how many parents have we seen letters to the editor who, who, who are so grateful suddenly for what teachers do every day? So I'm hopeful that legislators, people that make decisions about school funding, will recognize the importance of education. I, I've always felt that our future as a society, uh, you know, what we can do for generations of students has everything to do about the future of our, of our, of our society. I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that what's happened here will look very differently at the, the importance of what teachers do, pay them, pay them better, treat them better, fund them better, uh, and maybe look closer at the economic disparity that exists in our society and do something about it. So yeah. I'm hopeful about that. Yeah. I really am. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, and one last thing about that is I, I mentioned before about working with teachers, despite all this, and when I said how awful this is and how hard it is, they, they have not lost, the ones that I work with, they have not lost their passion and their love of, of what they do. So I think that, that uh, educators will come out of this stronger. And I do believe we will we'll have changed education in some ways. The use of different platforms for education I do believe we'll see some changes in how we deliver content and how we how we teach as a result of this. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And you and I are both married to teachers, so we can say this, yeah. you know, with in all in all honesty, it's a it's a special class of people for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would I would agree with you, Mark. So as you know, as I've talked to architects over over the years, and um, uh, you know, most kind of seem to talk about and think about you know the, you know you know trying to leverage themselves in such a way where they, you know, do different, you know, they, they serve different industries, they kind of go after different types of clients so that, you know, when one is maybe down, the other is keeping them busy, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But but you've you've kind of stuck to your knitting with, you know, going after the education market. How how good do you feel about that model as sort of, you know, do, doing that sort of contrary to perhaps what most of your colleagues are doing? Yeah. It's interesting, Vlad, uh, because when I first started specializing in educational facilities and did less and less non-school work, I can't tell you the number of people said, that's a crazy thing to do. Like, <laughs> you know, we, we live right. as a profession by diversity uh, in, in our practices, but, but I kept doing it. I, in, and frankly, I did it, in, I, I think it's apparent, my passion for this, I did it for that reason. But I have learned as a coincidence that I just happened to pick a field that I think is, is absolutely positively rock solid. Uh, the importance of education, uh, and it's not just California, it's across the country. We have a hugely aging infrastructure of schools. So there's sort of an, an unending uh, list of schools that need refurbishment, renovation, in some cases, demolish, to be demolished and replaced. Very true, very true. Yeah. yeah. So I think in the world of uh, architectural practice, despite the t- common firm you just described, which are much more, uh, non-specialist as I am, though there are some. I have found, I've lived through a lot of economic downturns, including the, the Great Recession and now what we're experiencing. And we we grew from a firm of zero to, or one to a firm of 65 and never really contracted through any of those. If anything, we just sort of leveled off. So I feel that way even beyond this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, during these times of hardship, Mark, I think this is also a time of opportunity. This is when companies, you know, innovate, uh, come up with some new products, ideas, way of doing things. How is your firm kind of preparing for the next decade during during this time? 
That's a good question. Uh, I, I have two answers for that, and I'll, I'll answer a little more immediately and then maybe longer term. If anything good happened out of what we're experiencing right now, I think my office and, and the industry will practice our, our work a little differently. So I mentioned I travel a lot. And when you look from the lens of sustainability, you know, the, the driving that we do, uh, the impacts that has on travel, um, I, I don't think is, a, is, we know, is not a very good use of energy and or time. So on the, on the more technical answer to that question, I think we're going to find our ability to do some distance work. So already we're beginning to think about how to remake our office to allow more sort of video conversations to happen. So when I need to meet with a group of teachers, or as I've had to do, community groups of 100, um, doing some of these things remotely using the technology that's been better perfected, I see that happening. But a little further on, um, I'm hoping this answers your question. This is more specific to us and our firm. My business partner, Steve Kwok, and I um, have slowly looked at what ownership transition looks like. You can't do what I've been doing for as long as I have, grow to be 65, and not recognize we need to think about ownership transition. Yeah. So we have three junior partners, and uh, as of the beginning of 2020, we have become an employee-owned business. So the future of our firm went from um, a corporation of partners to creating, it's called an ESOP or um, Employee Stock Ownership Plan, but we are an employee-owned company. And so for the sort of future of our company, um, suddenly our employees are owners. And it's something, Vlad, to see that shift in your, uh, in your gravitas in the company, how that changes that sense of ownership and what they deliver uh, to our school districts that they work with. Uh, it's a real exciting time for our office to suddenly find employee owner um, basis. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and we've definitely seen that kind of pop up in other parts of the industry. I feel like there's been a few construction companies recently that have that have yeah. done something similar, and um, you know, really trying to kind of leverage the the uh, organization and the interest with the people working there, right? Which is which is very interesting. It is, and we were actually approached to be purchased, and that's a whole other story. But what I recognize is uh, the culture that we've created, and I covet our culture above all other. Um, you know, the place that we have and the most remarkable uh, professionals I've ever worked with in my life exist right now in this, in this building. I don't want to leave in a way that begins to chip away at that, and certainly selling or bringing in money partners. All those things would change our culture. The, the method that we've chosen as an employee yeah. firm, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, Mark, young arch- architect is entering the industry today or maybe next year or, or the year mm-hmm. after. What would you tell that architect? You know, what are some of the lessons learned? And I want to couch this a little bit because I feel that in the Great Recession, which you which you mentioned in, 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 in your last answer, I, I feel like there was a generation of kind of architects lost. I think, you know, um, there was just no business, right, for a while. And um, how, how, how would a young person, what would you recommend to them, given sort of what you know today about the industry? So I, I, I've been very fortunate. I get to speak to high school. I get asked to come to career days. And I taught, I was a guest lecturer at Berkeley, uh, architecture students too. So I had the great opportunity to talk to young people. And I, I, my answer was always sort of the same to that question. I don't mean to sound trite, but it, it, it's imperative to architects, and I think for anybody in their profession, to first and foremost, go follow their passion. It, it's so easy in a, in a money-driven society or our parents who tell us what we should do. 
to do things because we feel it's a safer bet. And I feel like our chances for success, and I think I'm living proof of that. You know, I, I, I took a tremendous risk to do what I did instead of just staying and working for somebody else. Sure. Uh, but yeah. to follow that passion. For me, it was the passion to go off on my own and then to pursue a field I knew, or a, a, a part of my field I knew nothing about. So first and foremost, if you just find that part of the field of architecture that excites you, uh, you have the highest possibility of success. You are right. We lost a lot of architects. Uh, we had a hard time hiring after the recession and suddenly work picked up more and more. We found a whole lot of people that we knew about who were students at the time just left. They went off into other fields entirely. I'd like to see them come back and find their passion. Great. Great. Yeah. Mark, um, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate you it. Too, Stay safe. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. 